everybody, it's Martin Keenan here, and welcome to the first Infected Control Matters podcast of 2023. Delighted to say my guest today is Associate Professor Tina Joshi, who works in the Peninsula Dental School and the Faculty of Health down at the University of Plymouth. Now, Tina's had a, well, had been in the media a bit recently, for reasons we'll come back to later on, but um, I'm going to talk to her about C. diff. So firstly, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me, Tina. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Martin. Now, you, you've had a number of papers on C. diff, and as I said, you've recently been in the media on this subject. What first piqued your interest in Clostridium difficile as, or Clostridioides difficile as a as an organ that you wanted to do quite a lot of study in, as it turns out? Yeah, definitely. So I took my PhD many years ago in C. diff, um, and what I wanted to do there was develop a detector. So it was a really cool project when I was doing it, um, and to try and make a bit of a difference in terms of the diagnostic aspect of C. diff, because at the time... C. diff was a, a real significant problem and we were getting to the point where there was, you know, the outbreaks in the UK. So for me, that project was very important and I think it just continued from there. My passion is C. diff, but I don't think people know that about me because um, a lot of people seem to badge me as AMR. Um, but C. diff is, is my true passion and spore biology and I was very lucky to do C. diff, um, look at the spore morphology in detail, um, move on to bacillus species and things like um, Sutilis and Thrasis. And um, I've had a career where I've been doing those things and dabbling in things like escape pathogens as well. And the infection control aspects and the disinfection to work was actually a side project for me to develop my independence as an academic researcher, which some of the listeners may know about. You know, you have to develop a research trajectory. Um, and uh, I started working on that separately to, to my di- um, diagnostics work, and I really, really enjoyed it. And actually, it seemed like there was a bit of legs in that research, as you can probably tell. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of your earliest papers was looking at adherence to surfaces, both organic and inorganic. And to be honest, I hadn't really tweaked that these spores do adhere to surfaces. So Firstly, how does that come about? How adherent are they to surfaces? And and maybe we can then go on to how does that actually impact the physical aspects of cleaning as well? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. So a spore isn't just a spore, is it just a spore? And I think that's a conversation I've had with quite a few people lately. Um, it's, it, organisms, microorganisms and strains within microorganisms are all different and they all have different aspects to them and different kind of morphologies. And we saw that with C. diff. So in that particular paper, which was published in 2012, what we did was examine about 20 strains of C. difficile and look at whether their um, spore biology was different. And it actually was. And the reason is, is because, because some spores, and if you know much about spore biology, have a different exosporium on the outside of them. So bacillus spores definitely have an exosporium and it, it allows a spore to stick to a surface. Whereas with C. diff, we found changes and it was, it was slightly unexplainable actually that we just knew that the morphology of certain strains wasn't the same as other strains. Um, it wasn't necessarily related to it, their virulence. It was just a, a, a fact. So what we did was test some spores on inorganic surfaces, you know, things like stainless steel, things in the, in the hospital environment, for example. And looked at their adherence ability and how well the exosporum adhered to those um, areas versus uh, things like ACO2 cells in the body and HT29 cells in the body. So this is, these are in vitro experiments, of course. And we found there was definitely acute differences. And it, it says to me a lot about the fact that we are we seem to be treating definitely C. diff and maybe other microorganisms as if one strain represents all um, mm. strains of the microorganism. And I think that's a huge problem in IPC because you don't really know which strain is actually going to cause an issue later on if you're only testing one version of it. 
And if you're testing a version that isn't potentially virulent, then how do you know that you're really cleaning it yeah. or whether you're really actually disinfecting that particular strain? So that but it relates to all of my other research. I think it's really interesting that um, with that particular paper, we found such big differences in the ability of these spores to stick. And again, it relates to clinical environments because if a spore sticks to a surface for months, you know, you want to be able to get rid of it. And if a spore doesn't, then it means it can transmit uh, very, very quickly around the clinical environment. And again, I'm sure I'm sure loads of people know things about C. diff, the fact that it's, it's acquired from, you know, fecal to oral roots and through exogenous surfaces. Of course, it's going to be more transmissible and potentially infect patients more, more because of the fact that it, it moves and the exosporum has allowed it to, to move away from surfaces. So again, it's all related to hydrophobicity, and I'm not going to go too technical, but I think it's it's important for us to recognise these spores do move around hospital surfaces. And I think there's been a bit of a naive point of view thinking that all spores are the same. Yeah, I mean, I'm starting to think along that way with bacteria a few years ago when we were starting to look at biofilm and how they organisms attach to surfaces. And I think it was a paper from Espinal from a few years ago which showed that some strains of Acinetobacter produce biofilm and therefore adhere to surfaces better and survive better and others don't and of course in the clinical medical micro lab you're not going to know that so if your acinetobacter doesn't move if you've had an outbreak going on for ages chances are it's a biofilm producing organism rather than a, a sporadic that's moving through so i, th- I think we're starting to get that a, a little bit you know i mean to, the problem is it, it's um we get strains that seem to come in and cause us major issues in hospitals. Do you know if those strains are more likely to adhere to surfaces better? Is there any studies on that that show, you know, like 027 or some of the other uh, strains that have caused us issues are more likely to hang around? Definitely. From my particular research, yeah, 027s certainly seem to be more adherent and, again, cause more of an issue, and that's with inorganic and organic surfaces, and that's that's a problem. Right? We don't want them to adhere to our organic surface in the body so for example our ht29 cells or caco2 cells in the gut because that means they'll start to adhere and cause fulminant infection and germinate in the gut and in, in those regions and cause an infection in a patient potentially if that patient's immunocompromised and we don't want that so yeah there's there's papers there that have been published and of course other people have done these kind of studies too and looked at adherence as well so it's not just unique to, to my research it is quite I think acknowledged across the board that that some C. difficile spores are very adherent, and that causes an issue in clinical environments for sure. This is becoming a classic. One field is working away when the evidence, when this research would be very great if, if it got into the healthcare setting, because I wasn't really aware of adherence to surfaces in in the way you're describing until relatively recently, and I'm not sure too many other infection prevention practitioners are aware that spores do stick to surfaces and therefore might make them a little bit more difficult to remove survival then how long might a spore survive for on a surface because i've heard a friend of mine in australia talk about years tom riley but actually when you go looking for evidence in our world in the healthcare infection world people talk about a few months for c difficile spores but i suspect it's longer than that is that right um again i'm postulating but i believe it's longer than that and i think there's Mm. many many reasons behind it um and I think the reasons are is because we're not disinfecting appropriately because we don't really, we we do understand the spore biology. So I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to say is, and it's exactly what you just said and alluded to, there's a complete and utter disconnect between the scientific research and practitioners doing um, their practice in IPC. 
and I don't know why that's happening, but I think if we bridge those gaps yeah. and we spoke to each other a bit more, maybe perhaps we develop better methodologies for disinfecting very dangerous organisms like the ones we're discussing today. Um, but again, you know, we know that these spores stick around. We know that the disinfection actually may trigger um, a survival response in some of these spores. And actually, we don't know the full extent to how thick the exosporium layers are of the spores and how much they do survive in response to biocide exposure, for example, over months and years. So we've got these spores in the environment. We, we're not saying we, maybe, you know, the cleaners or whatever, maybe not be engaging in appropriate disinfection practice. And perhaps spores may stay on the surface because it's very unlikely that you're going to get rid of everything. You know, that, that's, that's a naive point of view, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, you're not going to get rid of everything off the surface. So you've got some spores that are just going to stick there Biocide exposure and whatever else is being used in the clinical environment over a long period of time. And we don't know the effects of that. And that's something that actually we're doing in my research group now. We're trying to understand the long-term effects of biocide exposure on these types of spores and whether actually it causes more of a, an issue later down the line because we, we just don't know anything about it in that respect. Um, but I think what you said is very true. And I do think that these spores do last much longer than just months. They're very resilient. I mean, you know, they're made of calcium dipiclinic acid. This really thick calcium on the outside of these spores, you know. Then you've got these, like, protein layers on the outside that protect it. And they're very well adapted. So, again, I would stay much, much longer. Okay. Um, did you find any evidence of different surfaces they're more likely to stick to? Because the average piece of hospital kit is made from a lot of different surfaces, can be metals, can be various different plastics. You know, is there any is there any areas that people should actually think, well, maybe you need to work a bit harder on that type of surface? Because we tend to think of metal as being nice and smooth and very easy to clean with fairly light pressure, whereas some of the plastics are, are that pitted because people like to put grooves in them to make it easier to grip, that they make it much more difficult to clean them. And that's exactly what I was going to say. So it depends on how rough and smooth the surface is. So mm -hmm. we do a lot of electron microscopy in, in my lab to make sure we can see the surface. If, we, if we're looking at stainless steel, we look at stainless steel surfaces that are very, very smooth versus the plastic and you can see the grooves at that level with using SCM and TEM. But the thing is, is that you don't want um, a, and it's, it comes to several different things here. You don't want a surface that's going to degrade because if you put something very harsh on it like PAA, or, you know, um, hydroperoxide on a certain surface, it's going to start to degrade. And that definitely happens with plastic. And that can mean that spores of the microorganism can potentially stay within deeper grooves if those grooves are, are happening because of degradation with plastic. But definitely, again, surfaces that are rough will be more likely to harbour bacterial species. Even if it's spores or not spores, it doesn't really matter because those grooves will allow the microorganisms to be, to be protected if in effect. Um, and we did see that with C. difficile, of course. We saw very interesting phenomena where um, actually on a, on a stainless steel surface, the spores would spread and the spores would almost bind to each other on the surface, forming it almost like a, a kind of a dryish biofilm. Um, and I say that with, you know, quotations because, yeah. you know, you can see it, but it's not proven as yet. But you can see these really strange phenomena under SEM and you think, well, why is that happening? And we know that spores don't engage in quorum sensing, so... How they manage to sense each other in that environment, it's absolutely phenomenal, fascinating, and perhaps an area of research that I should probably pursue. Um, <laughs> but again, yeah, it's, it's, it's just fascinating. That's the whole reason I did why I do it, actually. It's curiosity. So you asked me why I did it. It's, it's pure curiosity. It's, it's yeah, you know, it's like every, new knowledge. Sounds like every time you obtain a new <laughs> bit of knowledge, you get another 10 questions from that, though. So yeah, I don't think you're <laughs> going to be bored. 
<laughs> Anytime soon. Definitely not. I, I really love it. Um, it's, it's just so amazing that they do these things. And you, well, how on earth do they do that? And of course, they're, they're set into varying areas and they do manage to protect themselves and have this mag- magnificent, you know, um, you know, architecture around them that allows them to do that. So again, plastics definitely, especially for plastics degrading because of biocide use, again, that has to be looked at. Stainless steel, technically, yes, it's a surface that's smooth, but if it's been overused, it's going to develop those grooves and, again, mm. maybe spores can stick to those surfaces. But I think the worst um, culprit is floors. So <laughs> floors are very, very dirty, and I don't think we recognise that in, in IPC very well. But I've done a lot of testing on floors, and you know the amount of microorganisms on there and the ability to transmit and use footwear and whatever, it needs to be looked at, and I'm not quite sure why we don't engage in clean feet clean people wear practice no i know donsky's done some great work on that in um, in america showing that what's on the floor doesn't stay on the floor very long and it disseminates to other surfaces very quickly because he put his uh, bacterial files on the floor and in, in a in a side room and it was everywhere within a day so what what goes up and goes down doesn't necessarily stay down i think and in fact tom riley That's... i think has had some uh, some work done on that one in uh, in perth as well so how do we get rid of it then? You know, is it scrub hard with detergent and chlorine or what? What What do you think? Because you were suggesting ble- bleach isn't necessarily so effective. And some of the media headlines are saying it's not as good as water. It's interesting how the media take a certain spin on things. That's what I was yeah. saying to that. Yes. Um, but, you know, with the research that we did, we used a certain concentration of spores in a laboratory environment and test them against varying concentrations of sodium hypochlorite. Um, and I think what the media did then, if you don't mind me addressing this, I think it's really important for me to address this, is that they just focused on scrubs and they didn't focus on the core biocide acceptability study that we did, which showed that, you know, at 10 to the 8th course, um, sodium hypochlorite doesn't appear to have any um, effect on, the, you know, the, the spore quantity. So we only get like a one mob reduction. And there are scientific questions about that that we need to answer as a research group. We know we've done it. We've done it on many, many occasions. We know the, the data is robust. But again, we don't know whether pH is a, is a factor. We don't know if the temperature was a factor. Why, whether the spores were clumping, even though we tried to make sure they weren't clumping. So there's a whole range of things there that need to be to look, be looked at. But we know that the data is, is correct. We know that that's happening. Um, and and you know, translating that to a clinical environment, again, it, it has caveats, like I said before. But the thing is there is that, okay, you can use sodium hypochlorite, but again, not not necessarily for C. difficile because some of the research that we've done across the whole body of my research with chlorine-releasing agents seems to suggest that some of these chlorine-releasing agents interact with the exosporium and may change the adherence ability of these spores to increase their adherence. Um, And we're investigating that now. That's really interesting. But I think what you're asking me is, is, okay, what's the alternative? Well... I wouldn't. I wouldn't say chlorine. Actually, I think the reason I won't say chlorine is because some of the research I've done and others have done in this area. It's not just me that's done research in this. Other people have done similar research, and it doesn't appear to be very effective because it degrades very quickly over time. And it's all the parameters related to it. It's you know the way it's diluted in practice and how it's used that can affect how efficacious it is. So those are the other things there. The next thing is with chlorine, of course, is that, yeah, fine, it might kill gram-negative bacteria and general gram-positives, you know, and escape pathogens. That's fine. It might do that. But for C. difficile, no, I think the best thing, actually, from our experiments is UVC. 
Uh, and unfortunately in the UK, we don't seem to deploy UVC particularly well, or there doesn't seem to be an appetite for it. Uh, the other thing that people use is hydrogen peroxide fogging. And I think that's an interesting one. We've never explored it in our laboratory in terms of efficacy and in terms of, you know, in vitro laboratory experiments. Um, but it, it, it is assumed that it's very efficacious. Um, I think the next one after that is paracetic acid. And we are actually working with paracetic acid right now. And again, it's a very toxic chemical, very unpleasant to work with in the laboratory. And again, while it may clean C. difficile, you know, very low parts per million um, concentrations. My other question is to everybody listening is, you know, these chemicals are getting more and more toxic and should we be using such toxic chemicals in a clinical environment around patients? And I think that's food for thought because things like UVC, you know, I know you have to get rid of people in a ward to be able to deploy UVC, but um, I, I just, yeah, I just think that maybe that's it's a the bit safer. Yeah, that's the problem, yeah, isn't it? Get, problem. Getting people out of the way and and shadowing and that you know there are there are some issues. I mean, a hospital bed isn't like it was twenty, thirty years ago. It's a very complicated piece of kit to be able to decontaminate with UVC. Um, but I, I like you. I think ultraviolet should be our future. That we should be looking at. Can we talk about concentrations then of chlorine and the fact that different strains seem to be more or less susceptible to chlorine. Because you again, you wouldn't know that locally, would you? No, definitely not. And I think this relates a lot to um, kind of testing standards globally. So I know that you know this this like global testing standards. A lot of disinfection companies use um, varying uh, testing labs, so EN tests that they use to determine whether their disinfectants actually are efficacious against certain C. difficile strains. It seems to be one or two strains that they're looking at, um, and a lot of these strains aren't necessarily clinically relevant. So what I will say to that is it's definitely clear from my research and other people's research that strains like 027, hypervirulent strains, seem to be more tolerant to disinfection. And, you know, there's there's varying hypotheses there as to why that may be the case. And again, this is good postulation and speculation, but it's, it's a potential theory that because of overuse of biocides over time, these they develop some form of resilience against these types of biocides. And it's not within the realms of, you know, possibility because, or without the realms of possibility, because, it, you know, if you think about AMR and antimicrobial resistance, for some reason, you know, a lot of people ignore the fact that microorganisms develop resistance to antibiotics. And then suddenly we're in a situation now where we know there's very few antimicrobials left. But for a long time, this was ignored. And I think almost the same thing's happening with, with C. diff and biocides and biocides in general. We've, we're overusing biocides in the clinical environment. They're causing selective pressure on microorganisms to evolve. And microorganisms are evolving to, let's just say, um, step up to the challenge of biocides. And I don't think we're addressing that very well. And it might be a case, and I hope it's not a case, of where we think, oh, gosh, biocide resistance is ubiquitous and real. And it's as bad as AMR is. And it's in, under the banner of AMR. And we've, we've not acted efficiently and sufficiently. And it's all been too late. A bit like with AMR right now, I think it's all a bit too late, really. Um, it just says to me that we need to do more research looking at clinically relevant strains against biocides. Now, the stuff that we're doing is clinically relevant. We're looking at, you know, definitely now, and this is stuff that we haven't published yet, metronidazole resistance C-diff, bidaxamycin resistance C-diff versus biocides in our lab. And why are we doing that? Because we know that microorganisms evolve. And I think it's a naive point of view to say they don't evolve. And one strain is representative of 
in 200 isolates and uh you know that's it and our, bi you know, our biocide works against that one strain so it's going to work against the most dangerous resistant o27 and metronidazole resistant strains I, I don't think so so i think we've got a bit of a problem there so i'm i'm a say a jobbing infection prevention practitioner working in hospital i've got an outbreak of c diff i can't seem to shift it how am i going to get even some idea that it may well be that this organism's hanging around in the environment and possibly the biocide I'm using isn't going to be effective. Is there any mechanism that, you know, you could use to test for that? Gosh, in, in a hospital environment, it's very difficult unless you contract out and, yeah. you know, try and swab surfaces and sample your surfaces and, and see. But again, again, there's so many companion factors. I mean, how are you swabbing the surface? You yeah. know, and how are you, you know, like the, the S shape, you're doing the S shape. That's, that's what I was going to ask you. What, what's the best method of sampling a surface? Is it a sponge? Is it, you know, a poly wipe? Or, or what, what, how would you even go about looking for it properly in the environment? So we've done a few, a few bits of testing, actually, and we tested charcoal swabs and, see, you know, this S shape on varying surfaces laden with C diff versus a sponge. And actually, it's probably better to use a sponge um, with saline. So we use saline sponges to do swabbing. I know a lot of people do contact testing with contact plates still, mm -hmm. which I think is an interesting methodology. Um, and it's still apparently ubiquitously acknowledged that, that is probably the best method. But I, I would say probably swapping a surface and sending that off or growing the microorganism in the laboratory if possible. Um, but then again, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And it was all dependent on a diagnostic test that you use. I would say that if, you, if you've got, if you suspect that C. diff is lingering, you know, do a deep terminal disinfection process. And I don't think many hospitals are able to do that at the moment for varying reasons due to pressures. And that's difficult. Yeah, it's the time, isn't it? Yeah. That's difficult for me to hear as a scientist is dedicated. Their critics are trying to solve this problem. And then you realise that actually because of pressures that are undue with, with health services, they're unable to even deliver that type of disinfection in practice. And that poses a bigger question because... To me, that says, well, how can we even try and tackle things like AMR if we don't even engage in the terminal disinfection process? And that's that's a question for you, I don't know, and maybe a question for anyone listening, but for me, it's, it's been pretty hard to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the numbers of C. diff in the UK have been going up now for the last couple of years since the pandemic, and other countries are experiencing that. And, you know, I've heard Mark Wilcox talk about it, and he said, well, the virulence hasn't changed, the antibiotics, but they're not changing. But what C. diff is very good at doing is exploiting weak links and cracks in the system. And when the health service is creaking and cracking, then you're going to have a problem. And I, I suspect just what you said, nobody's got the time to do things properly. You know, you how long does it take to clean an isolation room after somebody's gone? I've seen recent work showing there is a big risk to the, the next patient at least and maybe the next couple of, after you've had a patient with C. diff in it for them to acquire it. And that's, I suspect, because it would probably take half an hour to clean a side room effectively and you've got 10 minutes. So some bits are definitely not going to get done. So that's the challenge going exactly. forward. Exactly. And I, and I think it's just it's difficult because if you've got a patient with C. diff, it's being on the sword of the mattress. I mean, is the mattress being looked at? Is it being cleaned? It, you know, what disinfection procedures are being it's used? A, it's a quick we wipe over. don't know. Mm. Yeah. And, the, know, and the pillow really is a quick wipe. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we uh, well, should have been zipping it to see if anything's gone through. And I don't think that's happening either. And you can see why these microorganisms are surviving if we're not disinfecting properly. And definitely because from the scientific point of view that I've got, they're, they're predisposed to surviving. They want to survive and then they always will survive, you know. Um, 
they go into in that clinical environment which hasn't been cleaned properly and I think we should be very concerned that this is happening in the UK because we don't want to see a new set of cases of C. difficile we don't want to see metronidazole resistant C. difficile proliferating in the UK and we certainly don't want to see and I will say you know if anyone's read the literature there is you know evidence of in vivo resistance to vidaxamycin now vidaxamycin resistant strains of C. difficile persisting in a clinical environment and then transmitting from environment to environment as we have recently described how that, that occurs. Where, where does it go from there? Because, you know, we have, I think you guys in, in practice, you, you do the front, front end of things and we're kind of doing the, the, the back end of things, you know, and we're trying to find solutions to AMR and resistant C. diff and trying to look for antibiotics. And I don't know if everyone knows, but there's, there's very few antibiotics that left in general. So where do we go from yep. there? And that's my big question now. And it's very worrying because everyone—I feel like everyone thinks C. diff is a done done deal. It's easy to clean, easy to disinfect. It's not a problem, but it is, and yeah. people aren't recognising that. You made a very good point then about unzipping the mattress because I've done that in the past and found brown stuff inside that clearly wasn't rust because there's holes in the mattresses. And if I could do one thing now in the whole of the NHS in England, I would do a national mattress survey because I suspect as budgets have got cut and there's no money, nobody's doing routine changes of mattresses. And I know one organisation years ago that needed 700 mattresses, and when they changed the lot, the C. diff rate dropped like a stone. So, you know, because it's it's where the spores will go, and if the hole's there, it'll it go both sense. directions. Well, this is it, and the thing is, you just have to think about the, the actual logics of the logic of this. And I, I don't want to offend any anyone listening. Hopefully, you all use this kind of you know scenario where you've got a patient who's got C. diff, and the mattress hasn't been changed. And then the bed isn't even cold and the next patient comes on and they're sitting on that mattress and whatever's in that mattress is rising up. <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's gonna it's gonna get on that patient's skin. And yeah. of course that's how you get it. Of course yeah. that's how they get it. And it's really worrying and people don't want to I don't think people want to acknowledge that is the process. But that yeah. is the process and we need to do something yeah. about it. Basically you've eaten something that's dropped out of somebody else's bottom. There's no other way of putting it, really. Um, it right, is. one final question. And I'm going to put you on the spot. What is the one thing about C. diff that you don't know that you would really like to know? The most important thing, yeah. Yeah, for me, it's whether biocide resistance um, is not just observable, whether it's genomic. And that's something I'm exploring right now in my, my research group. Whether this resistance is actually conferred in the genome, and we're doing a lot of whole genome sequencing to try and figure that out. But I think that, to me, is super interesting because it says to me that it's an evolutionary thing, not an observable phenomenon that we've been seeing. Okay. Fascinating. Well, good luck with that. Look forward to seeing that and the rest of the publication. And thanks very much for your time today. It's been a really interesting talk. I think people are going to get a lot out of this one. So thank you, Tina, for joining me. Thank you so much, Martin. I really appreciate it.